Great way to start the morning. So, um, good morning. <laughs> Just uh, curious if you would raise your hands if you got more than five hours of sleep last night. I'm trying to figure out where we're at. Really? Raise your hands if you got less than five. Raise your hands if you got more than six. Okay. We're doing okay. That's a little better than I thought, maybe. I, uh, if you want to grab your Bibles, we're going to be in Jeremiah chapter 7. And I, uh, I did something yesterday I don't think I've ever done in my life. I drove 90 miles to get here. I never set my cruise control once. And I, I was talking to uh, Diego and Patrick. Do you guys ever use your cruise control? I, I, just, I just started kind of feeling sorry for, for all of you that have to live out in Southern California. I, uh, my wife, her, her family lives exactly 90 miles from our house. And we pretty much just set the cruise the whole way. It takes us exactly 90 minutes to get to their house. So... That's our life, and um, we see. good uh, boyfriend, and so I'm going to get up and go with her to the barn. So I slept until like five, and I got up, and I, and I went out there, and when I opened the door to the barn, this is what I see. I see this young woman in sweats with her hair pulled back in a ponytail. She had big rubber boots on. Up the, their sweats were tucked into them. She had manure all over her boots. She had manure on her arms. She's got country music blaring in the barn, and she's <laughs> smiling at five in the morning, Singing, singing along to the country music, milking these cows. And I open the door and I see this, and I'm singing, "This is the woman that I want to marry." <laughs> so, that's yeah. Quick story about me. It was uh, so anyway. Yeah, Jeremiah chapter seven. <laughs> uh, last night we started we started our weekend together, introducing Jeremiah, talking about uh, standing strong. That Jeremiah is an Old Testament prophet that ministered for uh, over 40 years and what uh, a lot of people think is the most difficult time period in the history of the Old Testament. 
He served the Lord in this lonely time, 40 plus years. Jeremiah 1, 17 to 19 talks about how, how God promises, I'm going to make you like a mighty fortress, like bronze walls and like an iron pillar that will stand beatings and yet remain strong. And so that's what we want is to be people that remain strong. So I, uh, I, gotta, I want to show that picture again of this iron pillar from Delhi because there was a book written about this uh, not too long ago. And in India, they did a series of lectures. They're calling this pillar the, uh, what do they call it, the, a miracle of technology. And so there's been a series of lectures given over this pillar. I want to read to you, everybody's bright-eyed and bushy-tailed Saturday morning. I want to read to you an excerpt about this pillar. So interesting. Okay, here we go. Some physical facts about the pillar are reasonably well-established. It is 7.3 meters tall. With one meter below the ground, the diameter is 48 centimeters at the foot, tapering to 29 centimeters at the top. It weighs approximately six and a half tons and is manuf manufactured by forged welding. But that said, nearly everything else about the pillar is surrounded by acute controversy. From whom was it made? Exactly when? I mean, they, they think around 400 AD, but they're not sure. Where did it originally stand before it was moved to Delhi? What is the true import of the long inscription and Brahmi characters engraved upon it? Who placed the later inscriptions on it and when? So the excerpt goes on to unpack some of the questions surrounding the iron pillar and then listen to this. But understandably, the most densely argued chapter on this book is on the corrosion-resistant nature of this iron pillar, the pea content. And the S content of the low carbon mild steel of which it is made, the process of rust protection, the color of whatever rust there is, spectroscopic analyses are all themes. Something that has led to its being widely regarded as a miracle of technology given the times in which the pillar was forged. So I know what you're all thinking right now. It's like, where can I get my hands on that book? <laughs> The P content, let's go. The S content, right? Spectroscopic analyses, you know? Fascinating reading. But I, I, share, I share this because one of the things that has made this iron pillar so strong and a quote-unquote miracle of technology is what it's made of. It makes it incorruptible. It won't decay. A thousand years later, 1,200 years later, 1,500 years later, 1,600 years later, through the wind, through the rains of Delhi, through the heat, through a cannonball that's shot at it, there it stands, as strong as ever, corrosion-free. And if we're going to be people that stand strong, that remain faithful to an unchanging God in an ever-changing culture, then we have to be people that are pure to be corrosion-free, people that worship, that worship, that our worship would be pure and true. Or as Jesus said in John 4, that we would be people that would worship in spirit and in truth. Not a devotion that is blended with other devotions, but one that is singular and pure and all in for King Jesus. And so that's the issue that we're going to find here in Jeremiah chapter 7. So let's Read, starting in verse 1. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand 
in the gate of the house of the Lord and there call out this word. So he's wanting Jeremiah to go stand up in the gate of the temple and say this to the people, probably during the festivals. People are kind of parading through the gate. Hear the word of the Lord. All you people of Judah who enter through these gates to worship the Lord, this is what the Lord of armies or the Lord of hosts, the Lord of, of heavenly armies, this is what he has said, the God of Israel says, correct your ways and your actions and I will allow you to live in this place. Do not trust deceitful words chanting, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. So, Let's put this in context a little bit. The, the temple in Israel was a, a big deal. It was, um, so, so the Old Testament, the, the whole, uh, the whole, you know, the history of, of the Bible, the history of Christianity is all about, the, the we, in Genesis 1 and 2, we were created and we were, were living, um, man was living in unhindered, fellowship with the, with the presence of God, right? This just pure presence of God. You see that in Genesis 1 and 2. Sin comes in the world, wrecks everything. Then Revelation 21 and 22, we're back again restored and unhindered like fellowship and just like really clear, pure presence of God. And so in between there, it's like this journey back to this union in a, in a fresh, like intimate way with God. That's the story of the Bible. And so as you get, as you're walking through the Old Testament, the the temple of God is, was, um, so, so Jerusalem's the capital city, and that's like the center of Judah, and the center of Jerusalem is the temple. The center of the temple is the Ark of the Covenant, and the center of the Ark of the Covenant, in the middle of that was the law, the Ten Commandments. So the idea was that this would be, the Israelites would be a people that is surrounded by the law of God, and, and, it, and it, it was the center of everything that they did. And so the, the temple and on top of the, the Ark of the Covenant were these two cherubims that were uh, engraved in gold on this gold seat. There was the lid to the Ark. And they called that table the mercy seat. They, they'd make sacrifices on top of that. And um, this was where they, in the Old Testament, as you read it, they talk about God sitting there on the mercy seat. And uh, in its heyday, People from all over the world were traveling to Israel to see the wealth of this nation and to visit the temple. In Psalm 132, you get a little picture into how they viewed the temple. Verse 13 says, For the Lord has chosen Zion, or in other words, Jerusalem and the temple. He has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his home. This is my resting place forever. I will make my home here because I have desired it. It's like the presence of God dwelling in the center of his people. That's kind of the symbol of the temple. So, and, and some of our history books in the Old Testament, First and Second Kings, tell the history of a 400-year stretch in the Old Testament of when the kings ruled in Israel and in Judah. And the author of First and Second Kings tells the history of this nation theologically. So it's, it's a theological representation of history. In other words, every king of Israel and, Ju Israel and Judah divided their uh, northern kingdom and southern kingdom. And every king is uh, graded on whether they did what was right or what was wicked. So every king's introduced. And this king uh, turned away from the Lord. He followed in the ways of Jeroboam. And he did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. This king did what was right. He followed in the, the ways of David. And he, he did what was good in the eyes of the Lord. And, and 
there's these places of idol worship that are continually talked about in First and Second Kings. There's the Asherah poles, there's the high places, and there's the um, sacred pillars and priests to Baal, priests to these idol worship. And so as, you're, as the reader, as you're reading through this history described theologically, you begin to, to cheer for these kings to like purify the land. You know, get rid of the high places, tear down the sacred pillars, get, get rid of the, the idol worship in the land. Because you see, as the reader, reading back on history, how it brought so much corruption and, and, and sorrow to the land. So you're just cheering for kings to do this. And, and when, uh, after David was king, and then his son Solomon was king, and it was like uh, Solomon was following God. And it, it, the Bible describes this time as like gold and silver were as common as like rocks in the street. The temple was built, the ark was there, and it's like, we are so close. We're so close to being back in Eden. We're almost there. And Solomon turns his back on God, begins to surrender his heart to women that were taking his heart away from God. And then it's just like the steady decline of the nation. You just keep cheering every king as you read. He's like, come on, get rid of the high places. And a steady decline. And you get to the end of 2 Kings, and there's a king named Josiah. Anybody ever heard of King Josiah? So King Josiah, finally, he steps in as king, and he destroys it all. In fact, the heading in your Bible probably says Josiah's reforms when you get to that part of 2 Kings. He got rid of every trace of idolatry in the land. And as the reader, you're like, yes, finally, what a great victory. Josiah is the king. He, he got rid of the Asherah poles, the high places. He destroyed all. He purified everything. And when Jeremiah began his ministry, Josiah was the king. And Jeremiah, remember, he was from Anathoth, which is just three miles from Jerusalem. So Jeremiah's got a front row seat to Josiah's reforms, and he's watching this all play out. But by the time we get to Jeremiah 7, Jeremiah senses that something has gone totally wrong. What is it? What happened? Let's read it again. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand in the gate of the house of the Lord and there call out this word. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah who enter through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel says. Correct your ways and your actions and I will allow you to live in this place. Do not trust deceitful words chanting, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Josiah's reforms didn't work. The, pe the people, they were in the right place. And they were saying the right things. But their heart was far from God. If we want to be a people that stand strong, we have to work at reforming our hearts. Reform our hearts. If change is going to last, it's got to happen at a heart level. 
The people were trusting in the temple to save them. I can live however I want, you know, Friday through Thursday, and I'll go to challenge Thursday night, and I'm good. Or I can live however I want to on, you know, Sunday afternoon through Saturday night. I'll go to church on Sunday morning, I'm good. And God says that is deceitful talk. Don't buy into those lies. And here's, here's, the, here's the really the big idea this morning that I want us to kind of chew on for a few moments is this, that external religious activity, external religious activity that is not born from an internal love for God will not last. External religious activity that is not born from an internal love for God will not last. Religious activity that is for them was born out of some kind of obligation or duty. It was all about image management. It was all blended up with idolatry. There was no relational faithfulness to God. And we don't need more external and better behavior. We need transformation of the heart. So I'd like this morning to just be a warning to us as we read through some of these verses and Jeremiah 7, that we can't trust in religious activity for life. I remember about 10 years ago, I don't know if, if you were too young to remember this, when the, there was a mass shooting at Virginia Tech. I remember being glued to the news. It was the largest mass shooting to date. It was the first one on a university campus. And as they were coming out with details, Survivors were sharing their stories. It was just, it was just horrible. And at K State, I mean, it was just sobering. It's like just like quiet and somber. It's like this is awful. And like the next day, while this is all still being in the news, this large church just down the road from us, Kate, the story came out that the pastor of this church had been unfaithful. And I just remember being so frustrated. It's like at a time in our culture when the church should be this beacon of hope and meaning and purpose in life, like our, our testimony is just being kind of drugged through the mud. Come on. People that had great external religious behavior, religious activity that didn't last. I've had friends that were great. I mean, they'd come to conferences like this, and they were great at spiritual disciplines. They could live disciplined life. I had a mentor when I was in high school and college that I looked up to. I just remember thinking, I just want to be like him. Like I would love for my life to look like his life. And I, and I heard him. He taught me the word of God. I heard him unpack the scriptures like this is amazing. And so when I was in college, I wanted my friends to meet this guy, this, my mentor. And so I introduced him to my friends. And one of my friends who was really, really gifted musically, had a great heart for ministry, he joined up with this mentor, and they began to travel the country and, and to, to serve people and to do ministry together. They were great, great at external religious activity. And then I found out that they had fallen into an immoral homosexual relationship. Wrecked. At least it wrecked my mentor's life and ministry. Got another friend that he was the leader, man. I mean, everybody looked up to him. And he had the image down. 
got grossly involved in pornography. We started dating, and uh, he and his girlfriend began to sleep together. And we got engaged to her, and some godly counsel said, I don't think this is a good idea. I think that this relationship isn't, isn't healthy. I think this, you shouldn't move forward with this. He ignored it because of shame. It's like I can't bring into the light all the, you know, my past. I'm just going to marry her and we're going we're gonna to be okay. We're going to make it. So he got married. I saw him a few years later. I said, how's, how's life? How are you doing? You know, how's your heart? How's your purity? A few years into marriage, you know, your 20s. This is before the Internet. He said, oh, every couple of weeks I'll go down to the adult video store and rent a porn video and we'll go home and I'll watch it with my wife to, so that, uh, to stimulate us so that we can be intimate together. That's what he was dependent on for intimacy with his, in his marriage. I talked to him just a couple years ago. I said, how you doing? He said, I'm miserable. I should have never got married. I should have listened. My wife hates me. She won't even talk to me. Hardly when she does. She tells me how bad I am. She said, he said, I, I never drank alcohol before, but in the last few years, I've brought alcohol into our home to try to get my wife drunk so that she'll sleep with me. People that were superstars with religious activity, but not letting the Reformation go to their heart. I mentioned Eugene Peterson, that he passed away a few days ago. I don't think that was correct. I don't even know if you know who that is. I think that he went into hospice care a few days ago, and he's kind of in his last days. I'm really sorry if I freaked anybody out. Um, but uh, I, I want to read another. Uh, he, he wrote a book. I, my wife said it's out here. I think it's called Running with Horses. He wrote a book on Jeremiah that I thought was a wonderful book. But he said about Jeremiah 7, he said, getting rid of evil does not make people good. It didn't take Jeremiah long to realize that the reform was only skin deep. Everything had changed, but nothing had changed. External reforms or external behavior, while it may be nice, is powerless to save. The question is not, do I belong to a church or do I attend Christian Challenge? The question is, is Christ reigning in our hearts? External religious activity that's not born from an inner love for God will not last. In fact, it will wear us out. We'll surrender our hearts to the idol of image management. You know, cloaked in a Christian culture. So let's keep reading verse 4 again. Do not trust deceitful words chanting, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Instead, if you really correct your ways and your actions, if you act justly toward one another, if you no longer oppress the resident alien, the fatherless and the widow, and no longer shed innocent blood in this place or follow other gods, bringing harm on yourselves, I will allow you to live in this place, the land I gave to your ancestors long ago and forever. 
But look, you keep trusting in deceitful words that cannot help. And then Jeremiah begins to recount the Ten Commandments. Do you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods that you have not known? Then do you come in and stand before me in this house that bears my name and say, we are rescued so we can continue doing all these detestable acts. Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers in your view? Yes, I too have seen it. This is the Lord's declaration. Jesus quote. you might recognize verse 11. Jesus quotes from Jeremiah when he purifies the temple. When he casts people out, he says, My house is to be a house of prayer for the nations, but you've made it a den of robbers. Quoting from Jeremiah 7. And he makes a whip and throws people out. Pretty brave and courageous Savior that we have. So I want to listen to another commentator, what they say about this passage. As, as Jeremiah begins to recount the Ten Commandments, he says, The last named sin, idolatry, is not simply another on the list, but it's the climactic issue. Are you, are you with me? The relationship with God is the central issue but not in isolation from life. The relationship cannot be fostered through, say, religious rituals while the needs of the neighbor go unattended. The link between God and the neighbor is indissoluble. indissoluble. So in other words, their corrupt worship led to corrupt beliefs, which led to corrupt behavior. That's the pattern of sin. Corrupt worship leads to corrupt beliefs, which leads to corrupt behavior. You see this pattern over and over again in Romans chapter 1. I like how David Platt kind of describes it. He says, it's, he, he, he says sin distorts our worship, and then that distorts our beliefs, and then that distorts our desires, and then that distorts our behavior. It's the pattern of sin from Romans 1 is right here over Jeremiah 7. Their worship was all corrupt. And so they began to believe deceitful things. They began to believe as long as I'm here, it's like I can worship whatever I want and do these detestable acts. But as long as I come into the temple, this house of God, and say this is the temple of the Lord, I'm here, God, I'm here for you, I'll be okay. And those lies produced corrupt behavior. They did not stand strong. Believing lies about where life was found. Oh, we're rescued because we're in the house of the Lord. We're rescued because we're a part of a Christian group or because we're in this church or we even attend a small group. I want to read the verses in this sermon. This is called Jeremiah's Temple Sermon. I want to read the verses that identify all of their corrupt behavior. I want you to just listen. I, I made a slide that just kind of bullets, a bullet list of all of the behaviors that, that's going on in their lives. Let me just read this to you. So Jeremiah 7, verse 5, if you act justly toward one another, if you no longer oppress the resident alien, the fatherless, and the widow, and no longer shed innocent blood in this place, or follow other gods, bringing harm on yourselves, verse 8, but look, you keep trusting in deceitful words that cannot help. Do you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal, follow other gods? 
that, that you have not known. Then do you come and stand before me in this house that bears my name and say we are rescued so we can continue doing all these detestable acts? Verse 17, don't you see how they, have, how they behave in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The sons gather wood, the, fi- the fathers light the fire, and the women knead dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven, and they pour out drink offerings to other gods so they, so they provoke me to anger. So the whole family is involved in idol worship. Verse 24, yet they didn't listen. They didn't pay attention, but followed their own advice and their own stubborn, evil heart. They went backward, not forward. Since the day your ancestors came out of the land of Egypt until today, I have sent all my servants, the prophets, to you time and time again. However, my people wouldn't listen to me or pay attention, but became obstinate. They did more evil than their ancestors. Verse 30, for the Judeans have done what is evil in my sight. This is the Lord's declaration that if they have set up their abhorrent things in the house that bears my name in order to defile it, they have built the high places of Topheth and Ben-Hinnon Valley in order to burn their sons and daughters in the fire, a thing I did not command. I never entertained the thought. And God has had enough. And what dominates the list is that they refused to listen to God and they worshiped idols. And that worship affected the thinking of their minds and their thinking began to manifest itself in how they treated others and even how they treated their own children. down to idols in our culture and how it's affecting even our children. One of my good friends could never get his dad's attention to talk to him because his dad would never turn the TV off. And he's in his 40s trying to live, trying to live in freedom from that identity that it put on him as a child. We have to be careful what we surrender our affections and our worship to because we become what we worship. We become what we worship. There is this one true, eternal, immortal, good, like you know, omnipresent, omniscient God. But there are millions of things in this world that we treat like gods because we surrender our affections to them thinking that life is found in them. And that's a dangerous venture because what we worship affects who we become and what we value. If you, if you could, like, burn me up, you know, just like what's really at the core of who you are, aside from the spirit of God, you know, if, if just my flesh, just burn me up. It's like what's really there? The one thing that drives me, the thing that I, that I long for more than anything else in one word is respect. I will lay awake at night if I feel disrespected. I can't sleep. Hate to be disrespected, and I'll figure out I'll, I'll figure out ways of positioning myself, you know, my mind, and and and, and ways I can t- get people's attention to win their respect, and 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 the way that it, this shows how, how shallow that I can be, but it, but but the way this manifests itself sometime in me, it's like I'll attach my um, respect card to like my sports teams, 
even though I'm not playing, but I just associate myself with them. And if we lose and people start kind of making fun of my team, I feel disrespected and I hate it. And so I had tickets a few years ago to the K-State, it's where I'm from, KU basketball game. I'm not a KU fan, so I don't know. Maybe it'd be like USC Notre Dame or USC UCLA, or I don't know who San Diego State's rival is, maybe Gonzaga or something, I don't know. UC San Diego, okay. So, so I had tickets to this game and KU always, KU always beats us. And I hate it every time. And, I've, and so I had tickets, but my wife was out of town and my son had a Little League basketball game. So that made me mad. And I was thinking, small town Manhattan, Kansas should not be scheduling Little League basketball games when the, the biggest game of the year is going on. So it's just like, why do they do that? And then of, of all the, the, you know, the teams that my kid would be on, we got the team that plays right in the middle of this game. When I got tickets, couldn't go. So I'm following the game on my phone while I'm watching my son play. And we, we come out, we go way ahead, K-State does. And, and little by little, KU comes back and they end up beating us in a close game. Like different year, same story. And I was so mad. So after our Little League game, we go to Walmart to get some groceries, probably some frozen pizzas or something because Gail was gone. So we're at Walmart. <laughs> the the K-State KU game's just over. And, and all these people, all these KU fans, you know, we just live like an hour and a half, hour, 15 minutes down the road. They're, they're all coming to uh, our, this game. And so, so the Walmart's filled up with all these people wearing blue, KU blue shirts. And that made me more mad. And so I get my groceries, and I get in line, and I'm standing with three kids, which taking three little kids to Walmart is really a chore. And uh, there's a guy in front of me wearing his KU blue T-shirt, and it says on the back, what you call a rivalry, we call domination. <laughs> and that, my, my, my respect idol, just like welling up in my heart. So mad. Well, then my kid that just got done with the game, he's like, I'm holding one of my boys. My other boy's like messing with him. They're fighting back and forth. And pretty soon my, the boy is holding my arms. He like throws himself back from my other son. And he launches his head in the, right in my nose, right in my face. And so my whole face starts like tingling and my eyes start watering. I'm like, you know, blinking, looking around. I see this guy's shirt through glossy eyes now. <laughs> And, and that didn't help either. So we bought our stuff. We're on the way out. We're almost to the car. I don't want to talk to anybody. I don't want to see anybody. I'm, I'm just angry. And I see another KU fan coming from the game. It's a young woman, and she's wearing her blue, her blue KU shirt. And she's got her blue and red uh, ribbons tied in her pigtails. And she's got, uh, I can see Jayhawks on her cheeks. I'm just like, just look away, just look away, just like <laughs> ignore her. And she's walk, she starts walking towards me. Here's what I want you to know. I despised her. I did. I despised her. Because of what she was wearing. And she kept moving towards me with a big smile on her face. And she finally got right up in front of me and she said hi to me. I looked up and I was like, I know this girl. In fact, 
My wife and I have often prayed for her. And because of this idol of respect, I almost missed this moment to be a a follower of Christ in front of her. So we become what we worship. If we're going to be a people that stand strong, we have to sing reform at a heart level, not just a behavior level. And if all we're doing is working on our behavior, we're simply managing our image. We're making an idol out of our religion. But if we're working on our heart, the behavior will follow. So how do we work on our heart? Two thoughts. And we'll close with these. God keeps calling them to listen. He keeps calling them to repent, to correct their ways and their actions, but there's no evidence that they're doing that. But if we're going to follow God at a heart level, confession and repentance has to be a regular part of our life. When was the last time that you went into a room by yourself, shut the door, and sat down and asked God to reveal sin in your life? Just for 10 minutes, 15 minutes, God, just, I want to walk with you. Reveal errors in my heart, sin in my heart. Ask him for the courage and the strength to repent from it. First John 1, 9, I'm guessing some of you have that memorized. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is a heart level cleansing. There is power, there is power in confession. There is power in saying certain things out loud. We talked about Jesus being the light. We mentioned, I mentioned that last night. When we bring our sin into the light, there's power in that. When I was in college, we had a, a night, was a bunch of us were uh, at Christian Challenge, we're meeting together to do some planning for the next year probably about 30 of us in the room, and one of my friends, she gets up in front of everybody, and she says, I just need to share something with you all. That there's part of my story that you don't know, and I want to be truthful. I've been living a lie. This is who I am. And she shared that, and what do you what do you do with that? You know, we so we we just said well, let's gather around her and pray for her. So we did, and then somebody else stood up and said, "Well, I want to share something too." And before we knew it, five hours had passed of the thirty or so of us just confessing this thing. I remember one of my girlfriends, not not somebody I dated, but a friend got up and talked about being raped. I just remember just like wanting to be a brother in Christ. You know, I want to live to protect my sisters in Christ. Guys were confessing just um, sexual sin. I remember confessing just being overcome with jealousy over people in the room. And we just confessed and prayed, confessed and prayed. And I remember 
after that night, it was like the middle of the night, we're going home, and I just remember feeling like, um, like I had a free heart, completely free. And I remember thinking, I never, I never want to go back to the way life was before that. I'd been walking with God, but there was something that happened in that night that hadn't happened to me before. It's like something was happening in my heart. I wasn't just memorizing a verse. The gospel was penetrating walls in my heart. And all of a sudden, like, just feel like this, this power to persevere because I had a free heart. The other thought when it comes to working on our heart, to working at reforming the heart, is not only confessing sin, but be intentional with our worship. You know we get to choose what we worship? It's a choice that we have. Psalm 103 is one example where the psalmist says, My soul, bless the Lord. And all that is within me, bless his holy name. My soul, bless the Lord and do not forget all his benefits. So here the psalmist is commanding his heart. My soul, my soul, you turn your attention, turn your affections to God and worship God. He is God. He's the one true God. Take your eyes off of your circumstances. Fix them on the creator. My soul, bless the Lord. Can you imagine if, if on our way in here this morning, we also in this building, maybe in the back, there was like a, 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 an idol of Ganesh and an idol of Sheba and a Buddhist idol, and there was incense sticks being burned to them. And as you walked in, you're like, hey, well, I want to say, say a prayer to Ganesh because he kind of freaks me out. I'm a little bit scared of him. I don't want him to do anything bad to me. I'm going to pray for him, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just offer up a prayer for Buddha. Then I'm going to come up to the front here and raise my hands and say, this is the temple of the Lord. I'm here. Okay, God, I'm for you. Bless me, God. Bless me, God. That's crazy. But that's the picture in Jeremiah 7. You defiled my temple, bringing your idols into it. I think oftentimes it's just a picture of our hearts. There's another time my wife and the kids were gone for the weekend, and I couldn't go with them because I had some stuff I had to do at church on Sunday morning. And I remember they were gone, and I was like, this day's going to be awesome. I have the whole, after church, I have the whole day to myself. So I ordered a large pan pizza. Please don't judge me. With all the meat on it, large meat lover's pizza and no vegetables, grease, and me. And I got home and I laid on the couch with my pizza and I turned on the, at, in Kansas, it's the 12 o'clock NFL football game. What time did they start in California? I guess that'd be 10. Okay, well, ten, I turned on 10 o'clock football game. I watched the whole thing, eating pizza. And I stayed on the, I stayed parked on the couch for the one o'clock football game. And I watched that, the whole thing. So nobody's telling me to turn the TV off. Nobody's telling me to do any, anything around the house. Nobody's asking for this or that. It's just me and football and pizza. And so then the, the, the 1 o'clock football game gets over. I do a few laps around the living room, get some cold pizza out of the fridge, sit back down for the evening football game. And I was like, this is living. <laughs> this is what I dream of, you know. And uh, 
about halfway through my third football game, this whole pizza's gone. I think I ate the whole thing. And I was just feeling so gross. And I, I turned off the TV. I was like, what have I done? Like, what have I, what have I done with this day? And, I, and I, I tried to read something, you know, meaningful for a few minutes. It's time to go to bed, start over tomorrow. So I went to bed. I woke up in the morning, read my Bible. I kind of went through that routine. Dale's still gone. The kids are still gone. I, I grab my backpack. I, I, I head to the door. I'm going to head to campus. And I just recognized that my heart was not in a good place. I wanted to go to campus for the wrong reason. I wanted to go to campus to be tempted. So I remember kind of had this little struggle at the door. I I can't do this. This is not who I am child of God, I'm a son of God. So I turn around, I go into my bedroom, and I fall on my knees, and I put my face in the bed, and I remember what I prayed. This is what I said to God. God, you are more exciting than football, and you are more beautiful than women, and you are more glorious than sex. You know what? I said it to God. I did not believe it. So I said it again. God, you are more exciting than football. You are more beautiful than women. You are more glorious than sex. And I began to repeat that prayer. And as I repeated the prayer, I began to kind of marinate on those truths. That God, you are more adventurous. You are more exciting. You are more beautiful. You have created the stars and you've created the expanse in the sky. You created these wild animals and these, these jungles and the Amazon that we watch documentaries about. All that is from you. Like you are more, you are, there's, there's more passion in you than any passion that there is in the world. Let's begin to meditate on those thoughts. And it took me about 10, maybe 15 minutes of just worship, just being intentional with worship. And all of a sudden, I felt the burden lift. And I was ready to go to campus. Walking in victory. 10 minutes of intentional, real battle and worship. And it changed the trajectory of my beliefs, which changed the directory of my behavior. That's the power of worship. If we're going to stand strong to the end, we have to be a people that rests in our purpose, that lives for this glorious purpose, and pursues reformation at a heart level. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you don't just want our behavior, that you want our hearts, and that that's a good thing. You are a good, good God. And we thank you that as we move toward you, you are faithful to provide. that you provide a way out, you deliver us from temptation, you 
you move toward us. You remind, you remind us of who you are. You give us words to think and pray. We thank you for that. God, I pray that um, what I was praying for this group this morning out of Jeremiah 15, verse 16, that when your word comes, that we would eat it, that we would devour it, that it would be our delight, that we would be people that listen, that we would listen, that we would turn our ear to you and listen, and that we would be a people that would be quick to confess and repent, and that we would work and battle to worship. 